So we're back in 1 Samuel this morning, our Shadowland series. Uh, we're going to pick up where we left off a couple of weeks ago. As you know, this, the sermons have been rearranged a little bit because I was deathly ill for about three weeks, but I'm on the mend and glad to be here today. But two weeks ago, we grappled with the fall of King Saul. That was God's rejection of Israel's first king, a guy called Saul. And today we're going to ponder God's initial response to the whole Saul debacle. That's a bit of a rewind. Last week, Alistair looked at 1 Samuel 17, and he introduced a guy named David through the story of David's encounter with a giant Philistine called Goliath. That was what you might call David's public debut. This morning, we're going to look at David's debut before God, God's anointing of David to be the second, the next king of Israel after King Saul. Now, to recap briefly, chapters 13 through 15 give us a dour assessment of King Saul's leadership. The text make it, makes it clear, in fact, that Saul was, was fairly well a catastrophe. It comes to this, says one commentator. With regard to Saul, the people chose the wrong man for the wrong reasons. Saul, was, Saul had the profile of the type of king that they wanted, but they had the wrong profile in mind. Theoretically, they wanted something good in a king, but they didn't know what they truly needed. That's why they picked Saul. Now, God is, as you may recall, God initially indulges this whole Saul experiment. Why does God do that? Let me quote Alistair from a few weeks ago. <laughs> I want to quote Alistair from, he put this very well. Sometimes, this is what Alistair said, sometimes we get what we want instead of what we need because we have to realize the bankruptcy of what we request. There's nothing like a solid screw-up to make you teachable. All of this is about making Israel more receptive to God's brilliant vision for the kingdom. He wants Israel to be a kingdom unlike any other kingdom in the best way possible. So there's going, to be a, there's going to be a redo. It begins in chapter 15 when Saul gets fired, and it continues to unfold here in chapter 16. Look at the end of verse 1 in chapter 16. God has already made provision for a new king. The Hebrew literally reads, I have seen among Jesse's sons for myself a king. God is looking for somebody who will listen to him, someone who will relentlessly pursue God's priorities. And verse 1 tells us he's got a candidate in mind. Now, this is all part of a narrative that is very carefully and very purposefully told. Hebrew, Hebrew narrative is, is brilliant, in fact. And to get a proper grip on these purposes, today we need to focus on at least three things. We need to look first at the, at the way God chooses, Second, at the way God behaves, and third, at the way God saves. How God chooses, how God behaves, how God saves. So keep your Bible open if you've got one, or if it's on a, a handheld, as we dig into the treasure of today's scripture. The way God chooses. This is laid out in verses 1 through 13 of chapter 16, 1 Samuel. The story starts with Samuel the prophet, and he's grieving over Saul, and the whole catastrophe of Saul's demise. Perhaps Samuel had a tendency to over-identify with his ministry. There is definitely a whiff of self-pity in this verse, which is why God offers a bit of motivational reproof. Samuel, we got to move on. Off your toot, fill your horn with oil. You're going to Bethlehem, for I have seen for myself a new king there. This mission is, in fact, going to be the capstone of Samuel's career. But that's not how Samuel sees it, at least initially. In verse 2, he's frightened. If Saul hears about this, he will kill me. Now, that's an important little verse because it tells us that Saul has now become so desperate and so brazen that he's willing to kill a prophet of God. 
In other words, Saul is even further from God now, and so his humanity continues to diminish. Notice that God's response to Samuel's trepidation doesn't actually address the fear. God just tells Samuel, I want you to take a heifer or a cow, and I want you to carry it over there and use it as a sacrificial offering in Bethlehem. Now, on the surface, it might be tempting to see this as an invitation to concoct a ruse, but it's not. In fact, it's hugely significant, and I'm going to come back to that later in the sermon. Of course, Samuel obeys God. He goes to Bethlehem, yet when he arrives in verse 4, the people are not exactly exuberant. Samuel was scared to go to Bethlehem, and when he arrives, the people of Bethlehem are trembling at his arrival. So what's going on here? On the one hand, Samuel is an intimidating fellow. If you think of Gandalf when you think of Samuel, and that's kind of how I think of him, you need to think of Gandalf at the Battle of Helm's Deep, an intimidating and tough guy. That's kind of what Samuel was like. But on this occasion, however, I think there's something else going on. I think the people of Bethlehem had gotten wind of the rift between Samuel and Saul. And so they're probably scared about Samuel's presence in their village. If Saul hears about this, he might have displeasure towards them. He might actually pick a fight with them if they entertain Samuel. Well, Samuel quickly allays that fear. That's verse 5. He basically says, Simmer down now, everybody. My luggage is filled with peace. Don't worry. Goes into the town makes his way to the house of Jesse. Uh, who's Jesse? Jesse, by the way, is the grandson of Ruth. She's a woman of amazing faith. She has a whole book in the Bible named after her. Because God sees a future king in Jesse's household. Somebody's getting anointed today. This is verses 5 through 13. Now you can just imagine Jesse's astonishment and delight. His family's about to get a big upgrade, kind of like the Middletons in England a few years ago. Big upgrade, right? <laughs> Without batting an eye... Jesse drags his eldest son, Eliab, out before Samuel. And everything that happens here is scandalous. Look at verses 6 and 7. When they came, Samuel looked on Eliab, and he thought, Surely the Lord's, the Lord's anointed is before us now. But the Lord said to Samuel, Don't look on his appearance, or on his height, or stature, because I've rejected him. For the Lord sees, not as people see. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord, he looks at the heart. Folks, Jesse's living room is full of assumptions, faulty assumptions. Jesse's a person of his, a product of his time, product of traditional patriarchal culture, and so he just assumes uncritically that his eldest son is going to be the man of the hour. And Samuel himself concurs. He agrees. Evidently, Eliab had the external profile of a king. He was strapping, he was tall, just like King Saul. But even Samuel's judgment is faulty. Notice the little twist here. The seer does not see. And so before Samuel uncorks his anointing horn, God says, put down the horn. Samuel, put down the horn and step away. The Hebrew there in verse 7, because I have rejected him, that's the same language used about Saul in verse 15. In other words, God is saying, we're not going to make that mistake again. You had your chance to elect a king. That didn't work out well, so now I'm going to anoint somebody. Now, in verses 8, 9, and 10, according to the custom at the time and Jesse's sensibilities, he proceeds to parade all of his other sons before Samuel in order of birth. He brings out all of the plausible candidates. But nobody has the winning number. And Samuel's perplexed. Is everybody here? Do you leave anybody out? Any more sons anywhere? Well, now that you mention it, there is one more. That's Jesse speaking. Well, go get him. And nobody's going to sit down until he gets here. That's actually what verse 11 says. How's that for incentive? We're all going to stand up until he gets here. I bet he told whoever it was to go get him to run fast. 
Now, the scandal and the significance of this incident actually derives from the, the, the middle of verse 11. It's what it says. It says, Jesse said, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he's out keeping the sheep. Now, it looks like a neutral, descriptive statement. Wrong. Wrong. The Hebrew that's translated young there actually means small, and it is a derogatory term. Think runt. This is, a, this is a term of disparagement. David was the family runt. He'd, he'd been excluded from Samuel's momentous visitation. His father did not deem him worthy of an invite. Translator Robert Alter brilliantly puts his finger on this. Here's how he says. In this family, David is a sort of male Cinderella, left to tend to the domestic chores instead of being invited to the party. He's an object of scorn to them. But how wrong they are. In fact, David's the reason for the party. Verse 12, Jesse sent and brought David in, and he was ruddy, he had beautiful eyes, he was handsome, and the Lord said, Arise and anoint him, for that's the guy. David summoned. David arrives, everybody's really happy, they can finally sit down after a few hours. And in that instant, God says, That's my guy, the one that nobody even noticed. His father didn't notice him, his brother, not even Samuel. I think everybody was flabbergasted, including David. In their estimation, David didn't look the part. He didn't have the right profile. I mean, while David is handsome, he's not tall, he's not great in stature. I think he maybe was a bit like Tom Cruise, good-looking but kind of short. You know, Tom's about 5'6", five, 5'7", five, I think. Moreover, David's not the firstborn. He's the opposite, the family runt, the underdog, wrong profile for a prince. He's supposed to look more like Justin Trudeau. That's the point. Yet when God tosses the crown, it lands on David's head. Now, there is a towering lesson for, in, in these proceedings. It's a lesson for Jesse, it's a lesson for Samuel, and it is a lesson for all of us. Verse 7 encapsulates the lesson. But the Lord sees, not as people see, for people look on the outward appearance, but the Lord, he looks on the heart. Now, let's digest this thing. There's a couple pieces of fruit I want to give you from this uh, verse. First, let me say something about what this statement does not mean. It does not mean that God comes over to Bethlehem through his prophet Samuel and looks around at everybody's heart until he finds a good one. The text is not suggesting that David is an innately pure-hearted guy, a godly man, someone who's free from the inclination to evil that all of us carry in some way. That's not what David himself says later in Psalm 51. This is what he writes. He says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. And moreover, that is certainly not the demonstration of David's life in the decades to follow, because his conduct at that time is fraught with immorality. So what does that verse mean? Commentator John Woodhouse helped me to get it, because it took, took a bit of work here. Verse 7, he says, is not saying that God sees a good and a pure heart in David. It's saying that God sees David according to God's heart. That's a subtle but important distinction. Let me put it this way. This is not about the place of God in David's heart. David filled with God and goodness. This is about the place of David in God's heart. David's going to have a place in God's will and in God's purposes, which is why in verse 13, the Spirit of God grips David. The Spirit rushed through David. God chose David, and then God gives David the Holy Spirit in order to fit him out for the task and for the work. There's a theological insight we need to retain in this. I'm going to put it like this. God does not choose us. God does not love us because we're good. To the contrary, God makes us good. God gives us person because he loves us, because he chooses us. That's the first piece of fruit from verse 7. Let me, let me give you the second orange. 
God does not judge books by their covers. Much more interested in the content. Like me, if you come to, if you come to our house, the books have terrible covers, but the content is great. It's Carl Barth. They're like gray covers, no pictures, right? God's concern with internals over externals reverberates throughout the Bible, though not always in our lives. In the New Testament, Jesus puts it like this. He says, people are kind of like cups. Some cups seem squeaky clean. They shine on the outside, but on the inside, they're filthy. Your character is deplorable. You know, when we get too caught up in externals, we can often end up a bit like Odysseus in the Odyssey, Odysseus and his friends with the sirens. Those sirens had sonorous and enchanting voices. They were beautiful people, beautiful ladies, but it was all a facade that concealed monsters who were luring men to their death. True beauty, true valor, true nobility of soul is internal. In this story, I think that we're more often like Jesse and Samuel than like God. When they see David, they see a runt. They see a good-for-nothing but taking care of the sheep. But God sees a man who can be formed into a glorious king, someone with vast potential. All too often when we assign value and promise and importance, we tend to do that using external criteria, factors that can be rather superficial, just like Jesse and Samuel here in this passage. But in the end, that's folly. Think about this. Because external factors, external beauty, external qualities, they're always fading. I mean, as we sit here right now, our bodies are aging. We're sagging. We're starting to sag. Wrinkles are coming, excepting all the women in this room, of course. Right? <laughs> our brains are deteriorating. But with internal beauty, it's different. It can actually ripen with time. My character can gain radiance, even while entropy has its way with my body. I don't think it's an overstatement to say that our culture, our context, has really intensified fixation on externals. We obsess with glamour and glitz, the right look. We spend billions of dollars on cosmetics and clothes, and I'm not just talking about women, also men. In Vancouver, many a man is a Dapper Dan, right? Many a man is a Dapper Dan. I'm not against combs and makeup. It's about not looking in the mirror too much. That's our bent, and it explains so much of how we operate. It explains why certain people attract more conversations out there in the lobby. It explains how we spend our money, how we dream, who we invite around. It explains the proliferation of eating disorders. It explains what arouses us. That list goes on, filled with external preoccupations. And by the way, this is nowhere, nowhere more apparent than with the noxious effects of pornography. Pornography conditions you to look at the beauty and quality of the skin, not the content of the character. Pornography trains us to fixate on externals. It trains us to look at life exactly the opposite of the way that God does. And as a pastor, I suspect that is why many men, but also many women, walk past wonderful spouse material all the time without even noticing. Think about that. Every day we're being conditioned not to attend and delight in the content of character. Verse 7 is an alarm bell. An unyielding precaution. God is saying, don't be distracted by externals like everybody else in the world. Don't focus on the wrong things. Look inside. Look for substance. Don't judge a book by the cover. If you do, you'll end up deceived. It's sorry, but more importantly, you'll miss out on the opportunity for greater beauty. Just think of Susan Boyle. She won Britain's Got Talent a few years ago. You need to watch the video if you hadn't seen it. She's a bit like David. Listen to this reminiscence. When Susan walked on the stage, everybody just knew at a glance that she was a loser. 
And her ensuing singing act would be a sad spectacle. That's what they thought. After all, Miss Boyle seemed tongue-tied during her interview. And when she wasn't stumbling over her words, she was behaving a little oddly. She was a quirky lady. And then there was her physical appearance, which bordered on unkempt and unruly hair, bushy eyebrows, and a bit of extra weight around her face, and yes, also in the middle. But then Susan sang. And within seconds, every last person in the audience, even Simon Cowell, melted over her song which was very appropriately titled, I Had a Dream. You need to watch that video if you had not seen it. Commentator Matthew Henry, Matthew Henry, old commentator, sums up this theme of the Bible and of this chapter very well. He says, God delights to exalt those people. God delights to exalt those whom people despise, and God relishes to give abundant honor to those who lack it. So we need to start singing like God. We need to start choosing and using our lives in a, like, in a similar manner. So let me give you a little take home here. Because we all need a perspective shift. I need a perspective shift. We all need a perspective shift. When you think about how you're doing in life, we all have these internal conversations. How am I doing in life this year? Start asking questions like this of yourself. Are you less prone to envy and vanity than you were last year? Are you less prone to selfishness and self-pity than you were a couple months ago? Are you less sensitive to criticism? Are you wiser? Are you less anxious? Are you less controlled by your circumstances? Am I maturing in my capacity to love and be loved instead of to lust and be lusted after? Probe yourself. Chart the evolution of real substance in your life. Not going to find questions like that in Hello Magazine or People Magazine. Lululemon's not going to be advancing those type of questions in their marketing. But you should find and see those types of questions in the life of anyone who is serious about following God. Anyone who's serious about abiding in his love. Beauty grows in you to the extent that love grows because love itself is the soul's beauty. That's St. Augustine. Time to move on. Second point locates in verse 14 to 23, the way God behaves. We've just seen how God chooses. Now we'll look at the first act of business of the newly anointed king before he's even crowned. Verses 14 and 15 read this. Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul... And a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. And Saul's servants pointed out the obvious, saying, Behold, a harmful spirit is now tormenting you, Saul. I added in the <laughs> pointed out the obvious part. That wasn't in the Hebrew. In the aftermath of Saul's rejection by God, his reality is increasingly vexed. There's been, a, with, the, with regard to the anointing by the Holy Spirit, there's been a bit of a seesaw. David has received the Spirit, and Saul has forfeited the Spirit. And Saul becomes tormented by another Spirit. And let me pause and dwell on this for a minute. This is perhaps a supernatural thing, but at the same time, small s Spirit in the Old Testament could also refer to your mood or your disposition. Who knows? It's not, it's not immediately self-evident what's going on here, but whatever the case, we know that Saul is in a bad way. Spiritually, morally, psychologically, he's disturbed. To quote one Old Testament specialist, Saul has been made a terror to himself. And all of this is the effect of Saul's rejecting God and God's eventual, but after a long time of patience, God's eventual counter-rejection of Saul. Now in verse 16, Saul's servants, they're kind of freaked out by what's going on. They say, listen, how about some music therapy? And somehow David's name makes it on their list. Evidently, even early in his life, David had a reputation for singing, which isn't a surprise given that he wrote most of the Psalms. Verse 21, the therapist arrives, and David came to Saul and entered his service. And Saul loved him greatly, and he made him an armor bearer. That's a position of status. 
and in verse 23, And whenever the harmful spirit was upon Saul, the spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand, and Saul was refreshed. Now, this is kind of a bizarre turn of events, eh? The irony is palpable. The rejected king unwittingly seeks out someone, the guy chosen as his successor, to come and serenade him. Yet the gravitas of this startling event is not in the irony, it's to be found in how God himself is behaving. You see, the first task of God's newly anointed king is to be a doctor. Verse 23 says that David's music refreshed Saul's soul. The Hebrew actually says it brought a measure of wholeness back to Saul. And what we need to discern is this. The soothing effect of David's melody is bound up with the Spirit of God rushing through him. Back from verse 13. In other words, what's happening here isn't just David, the artful music therapist. It is God working through David, which is why David continues to care for Saul in the coming chapters, even when Saul tries to kill him repeatedly. Listen to this. By staying put, by being committed to Saul, even when it's met with insane hostility, David is doing what people don't normally do. Why is David doing that? Because David is doing things God's way. And this is a little window into how God behaves, not just towards his friends, but also towards his enemies, people like Saul. You see, in the context of this narrative, divine mercy and compassion are being doled out. In fact, the chapter ends with God's astounding kindness on display. And it's all directed at Saul, a traitor, an adversary, the guy who turned his back on God. That's how God behaves, according to this text right here from the Bible. Now, some of you may have been misinformed on this front. You may be right now even. You think of God as a divine despot. You think of God as a celestial tyrant who makes impossible standards and then oppresses anyone who doesn't measure up. You may think of God as unforgiving, somebody who feels anger more than love. If you carry that impression, will you let the Scriptures interrogate it a little bit? Will you be open to a shift in perspective? Because right here we're watching God's profound goodness translate into remarkable care towards someone who utterly betrayed him. Saul had a sacred duty as the king, and he trashed it. But God, in response, he doesn't smash Saul and throw him in the trash. In fact, the opposite. That's what's going on here. Do I need to say anything else about that? It's pretty clear. This isn't this, the whole Saul saga, by the way, to make a modern analogy. It's not that, un, that unlike the ascendancy of Robert Mugabe in Zimbabwe. Uh, when he started as PM of Zimbabwe back in 1980, he was adored by the people. It's very interesting to read about his story. A visionary, a reformer, a champion of healthcare and education and national autonomy, he was collecting honorary degrees. But then things began to change. Yes, there were some diff difficult circumstances, but there was also a corruption of character. And with the passage of time, the liberator turned brutal dictator, a lot of blood on his hands. A lot of oppression, an economy ruined, fear politics. Archbishop of York, John Sentinu, who's originally from Uganda, said this. He said, Mugabe is the worst type of racist dictator. Would I offer Mugabe comfort and consultation should he need it? He ruined the lives of my friends, Mike and Pam. Would I desire to bring him care? I would not, at least at a visceral level. I want him to rot. I want to see him crushed. I don't want to see him get any consolation. Because I'm not like God, at least innately. It's a good thing God's not like me, not like all of us. Sorry to insult you. But this can change. I can change. How's that happen? For that to happen, you've got to see how God saves.
in a manner that is comparably more pronounced than in other Old Testament texts, 1 Samuel 16 directs our attention to Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus Christ, you might say, say, is so magnificent that it takes God thousands of years to prepare us to understand him. And that is exactly what God is doing in today's scripture. I want you to perceive that it, it, it's how God saves, and there are three clues right under our nose that point to it. First off, there's the language that is used in reference to David. I hadn't mentioned this before, but I want to bring it up now. The term anointed appears four times in this text, and that term in Hebrew is Mashiach, from which we get Messiah. Today's passage is one of the first in the Bible to introduce the whole notion of Messiahship. In the biblical view of Messiahship, it's not a human creation or a progressive political theory. It's God-centered and God-initiated. The Lord is mentioned 15 times in this chapter. God is the chief actor here. A Messiah is someone who is divinely anointed, not elected. And when you take all this into account, you begin to recognize that verses 13 through 23 are not just about David being a nice guy. It is so much more than that. These verses are revealing the purpose of the Messiah, one who is sent to serve and to heal a troubled world. I don't, we don't want to miss the forest for the trees. Second clue. It's the event that happens right after David gets anointed. In verse 13, the infusion by the Holy Spirit of God. This is about Messiah empowerment. It's why David is able to bring some limited amount of comfort to Saul in verse 23, and it is why Jesus Christ was constantly restoring lives in ways that vastly exceed anything, any of David's music therapy. David calmed, Jesus cured. And finally, I want to return to that odd detail about the sacrifice that God commands Samuel to make in verse 2. This is really gripping. Now, I noted earlier at the beginning, this is not some sort of ploy to get access to the village, but the true meaning here is a little bit enigmatic. But the best nuts often take a little work to crack open, don't they? So let's do that. In verses 2, 3, 4, and 5, the word sacrifice appears five times. It is a thematic linchpin for interpreting this passage of Scripture. The sacrifice that Samuel makes is not about deception. It's not just a religious ritual. It is about the establishment of peace, peace between God and his people. In the Old Testament, some of you will know this. If not, don't worry. I'm going to explain it right now. In the Old Testament, sacrifice is always concerned to reset harmony between God and his people. There can be no shalom. There can be no peace without sacrifice. And by the way, that's, that's true for us in human-to-human -human relationships. You cannot have reconciliation with another person unless you have forgiveness. And forgiveness always involves sacrifice, doesn't it? Somebody's got to absorb the offense. Somebody's got to bear the cost. That's how it is. Like it or not, that's how it is. That's how the world works. Same thing's true between God and us and our relationship. And Samuel is giving what I like to call a prophetic display of how God saves right here. It's there in verses 4 and 5. The people say, Samuel, have you come in peace? They're scared. And Samuel says, yes, I am here to bring shalom. I've come to establish at God's command through sacrifice. I have come to establish peace. Are you beginning to see? I want you to think about what happens as all this plays out in the context of this story. Here's how I like to summarize it. In chapter 16, the Messiah, who is David at this time, is made known in the context of sacrifice. And the Messiah is the one who carries the Spirit of God. And in both of those ways, the Messiah is the one who brings God divine healing 
in God's service to a world in trouble. That's what's going on here. That's how the Old Testament is showing us, revealing how God saves. St. Augustine put it like this so well. The, the New Testament is in the Old concealed, and, in the, in the, and the Old Testament is in the New revealed. And yes, it is. And to the degree that I perceive this, I begin to make better sense of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the heir and the flesh of King David. Jesus Christ, David's descendant, who just like David was not a winner by the world's standards. Jesus Christ, who just like Susan Boyle, totally shocked everybody when he started his work. They couldn't believe what they saw. Jesus, who was born lowly with animals, who willingly identified with the disenfranchised, and he still does with a special fondness. Jesus, who relishes to call and use the unwanted, the runts, the ones with no, no social capital. And, and when we're honest with ourselves, we can all identify with some, one of those words. But in addition to this, Jesus, who is the truer and greater Messiah than his forebearer David, the Messiah. You see, Jesus may have looked like a pauper, but he was a prince, prince of heaven, prince of peace. That's what he's called. He's the one anointed by God and filled with the Spirit in a way that exceeded anything Saul or even David ever knew. And Jesus never grieved that Spirit. Never. And Jesus still works in that Spirit in mighty ways. He's doing it right now. Yet Jesus is also the one who became a sacrifice of peace. Jesus is the one who was decisively revealed as God's Messiah in the context of that sacrifice by laying down his life so that our existence would not be negated ultimately by separation from God. So that despite the fact that humans are constantly saying F you to the one who made us in love, some measure of intimacy may be restored with our Father. That's how God saves. Comes to fruition in the New Testament, but you know what's patterned all over the Bible? It's right here in 1 Samuel 16, and it is a reversal of the world's values. Because Jesus is a Messiah King who says, I'm going to take your life higher and higher by making my life lower and lower. And it's not your life to serve me. It's my life to serve you because I cannot be happy unless you're flourishing, even if it costs me. That's how God saves. That's beautiful. And guess what? When, when we encounter beautiful things, when we gaze at them, we get changed. You know this. It can be a moving story you hear that softens your spirit. It can be an, an action that you witness, an act of kindness that came from no obligation. Or it can be a person you know, a person who epitomizes everything beautiful. That's Jesus. Let's read the New Testament. To gaze on him is to be changed. David understood this. That's why he wrote in Psalm 27, the one thing I've asked after is to gaze on the beauty of the Lord, to dwell in his temple all the days of my life. And the Bible says the more we gaze on Christ, the more we meditate on his love, his works, his salvation, his sacrifice, the more we will become like him, the more able, therefore, to mirror his own kindness to the souls of our lives. And they're out there. And you know what? The world needs a lot of that kindness right now. This is where we get the spiritual resources to stop being what we are and to become what we were created for in Christ we too have been anointed by God and we too carry his Holy Spirit.